Hello, friends. Hello again, my friends. I'm LD Madeira, and this is Improv and Magic. Today's a really special day, and I'll tell you why. Because one, I'm here again with you. You're alive, I'm alive, and we're spending this precious time together again. And that's something that I feel really good about. And two, today I get to talk to another one of my childhood heroes. He's the mega magic star, Franz Harari. Franz Harari's groundbreaking illusion designs have changed the entire scope of modern magic. And his spectacular brand of Grand Illusion has been dubbed Mega Magic by the international press. His magic is on a really large scale and includes such amazing feats like vanishing the Taj Mahal, moving Hawaii's Diamond Head Volcano two miles out to sea, teleporting people from Japan to Los Angeles, making the Goodyear blimp disappear, and even making the NASA Space Shuttle become invisible. This guy knows how to take it to the next level. He's been featured on many television shows like World's Greatest Magic and Masters of Illusion, and has also appeared in other television specials airing in different countries like Japan, China, Thailand, Korea, and India, among others. Franz Harari has also designed illusions for many well-known musical artists like NSYNC, Snoop Dogg, Tupac Shakur, Usher, Reba McIntyre, and Missy Elliott, among many others. You know, they say never meet your heroes, but boy, was I happy to meet this one. Franz was very fun to talk to, he was incredibly nice, and we just had a great time together. You'll hear him share about his early beginnings, some of his philosophies in magic, and how it all started by sending a videotape to Michael Jackson. Get ready to be amazed, my friends. Here's my guest, Franz Harari. My friends, I am very thrilled and excited to welcome my guest today, the incredible Franz Harari. Hey, Franz, how are you doing today? Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, almost live in 3D. <laughs> uh, this is incredibly nice of you. Uh, I really can't thank you enough for being here. I've watched you since I was a kid. I saw you for the first time on World's Greatest Magic. And I'm sure by now you must have had a lot of people coming up to you saying, I watched you uh, as a kid. What's what's that feeling like to see these grownups who've grown up with you? It's for so weird. It's, it's happening f from more older and older people i've got like i'm only 61 years old that's not i mean i remember when 50 was old but suddenly <laughs> that's not so old anymore but i've got like 50 year olds coming up to me saying mr harari i watched you when i was a kid so oh my god somewhere along the line i became yoda i don't know how it happened but here i am so i embrace it <laughs> um how are you doing these days i know you're you're usually very busy but how are things going for you nowadays well, you know, um, well, I found that there were two kinds of producers and illusionists uh, during COVID. Uh, there were those that got their asses kicked, and then there were those that lied about it. So <laughs> for me, uh, you know, everything shut down because I had all of my eggs in the in the China basket, China, Asia, Southeast Asia. 
and that whole part of the planet just shut down. So it's only now starting to come back together. And, you know, so my, my career is back where it was, but it took a while to get there, you know, and, and I think, uh, I think that was the case for a lot of guys like me, you know? Hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Because especially since you're so used to performing for thousands and thousands of people right. and performing in right. big arenas and big stadiums. Right. That's it. it. It wasn't really until this year that people started doing arena shows again. So it's a, uh, I found that my buddies that are doing basements and bar mitzvahs and, you know, you know, birthday parties, they, everything went back very, very quick. But it took a while for the really big shows to return, you know, so happy, happy to be back, you know. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, the world is happy that you're back, too, I'm sure. I would like to think so. <laughs> uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, why don't you tell us where you grew up and what growing up was like for you? I grew up in Ann Arbor. Well, OK, I, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then Pretty quickly, my my folks, my mom, who was German, took me to Germany, where I, I kind of grew up there. So I grew up speaking German, being German. And then, you know, by the time I was ready to go to elementary school, came back to, to Michigan and, and went to school in the States, but basically grew up in Ann Arbor. Um, my whole life, right from the beginning, I was into theater and, and oddly enough, improv, although at the time I didn't know it was called improv. I just <laughs> thought it was called doing plays, making up plays as you go along. Uh, and then, um, you know, I, by the time I got to high school, I realized that theater really is it for me. And at the same time, I, I discovered magic. Uh, so I went to Eastern Michigan University, but did most of my work at the University of Michigan working on a musical theater degree. Um, had a scholarship there thinking I'm going to go to, go to Broadway, you know, going to be a, go to Broadway, be a singer, dancer, actor, all that. Uh, but at the same time that I'm at the university of Michigan, I was teaching myself, um, how to do illusions for stadium audiences because there's the big U of M football game every Saturday. So I convinced the marching band director into letting me design illusions for the marching band. And I really didn't know what I was doing, so I'm just kind of making it up as I go along. But, but along the way, I I came up with some principles that I actually still use today, and that I've I've sold to people like Copperfield and Luis Dematos and Kevin James. And so these are principles that allow me to do very large illusions outdoors in the sun, surrounded 360 degrees for an audience that that does not necessarily want to see magic. So doing that all through college, um, still thinking that I'm going to go to New York, uh, I did uh, four years. I, I pushed all of my difficult classes to what would have been my fifth year. So for the first four years, all I did was music and theater and dance and, and that, uh, and magic, doing magic the whole time. So in 84, Michael Jackson announces that he's doing the victory tour. He's going to go out. And I, like everyone at the time, was a huge fan of Michael Jackson. So so. I sent a VHS video to his manager of me making a car appear in uh, in a football field and said, look, uh, my name's Franz Ferrari. I'm, I'm a 21-year-old magician from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I do this for, for halftime shows, and I can do this for Michael's show. So next thing you know, I get a call. I'm flying out to, to L.A. I meet Michael, my, my, my idol and hero, and we got along instantly clicked. I, I ended up designing all the illusions for the Jackson's victory tour. And then from that, 
everybody else. So I, I never finished school. I moved out to LA and I became the guy who designs magic for concerts. And I mean, there, there's no way to go through my list without sounding like a pompous douche, but <laughs> everybody, Janet Jackson, Alice Cooper, Prince, Stevie Wonder, Madonna, just freaking everybody. You can go to my website and you can see all the names. So I became that guy. At the same time, I was designed for concerts and and really becoming a you know pretty good friends with Michael, I was missing, you know, performing myself. And I remember one it was, it was nineteen eighty seven. I was hanging with Michael, and he goes, "You know, Franz, you you're doing all this stuff for me, but don't you miss doing it yourself?" And, and the fact of the matter is, yeah, I did. So I, I took everything that I had learned from Jackson and from the the music industry up to that point, and I used those design philosophies to create what was then the first illusion show that looked like a rock concert. And that included me with the big giant Bon Jovi hair and the mustache and the metal leather jacket and, and motorcycle boots and rubber pants and the whole thing. I, I, I committed, I was there. And so I put together this show and it uh, very quickly got me a lot of recognition in the business. So now I had these two careers going on where I'm still designing for all these concerts. Uh, and by this time I'm doing Alice Cooper and, the new edition and in sync and I mean everybody, right? But at the same time, I'm also doing my own show. So these two parallel careers are going and they still do to this, to this point today, I really don't look for design gigs. They just sort of fall in my lap. Um, and I, I really, I've just sort of, I, I'm to the point where I kind of let the universe just hand it to me and whatever comes is, is what I do. Right. But the, my career really is divided up between design and production and performance. But, you know, as I, as I grow older, I'm less interested in putting on the, the shiny jacket and getting up on stage and pointing. And it's, it's more rewarding to produce and design. Hmm. It's a long answer to a short question, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love long answers. I really, really do. It gives us an opportunity to do, to learn more about you. You know, to, to say that you're going to send a videotape to Michael Jackson is a really ambitious thing to do. Have you always been sort of like a, a big ambitious guy? Well, yeah, there's, there's two parts to that answer. First, let me talking a little bit about the VHS tape. So I gave, I, I take the VHS tape and I give it to my agent in Michigan. This is the guy who's booking me on church basements and bar mitzvahs, right? And I say, send this over to Michael Jackson. He goes, great, no problem. So every, like twice a week now for the next month, every couple of days I call him, hey, any action, any reaction from, from Michael Jackson? And after about a month or so, he goes, look, man, I didn't even send the tape. Just forget <laughs> it. You work for fucking Jackson. Just stop calling me. And I got so angry. So I ended up, at about the same time, um, uh, he burned, Jackson burned his hair on the Pepsi commercial. So they said the name of his attorney on Entertainment Tonight. So I wrote it down. I found the attorney in LA, called the attorney and said, my name's Franz Harari. I'm a magician and, and I want to design magic for Michael. And the attorney goes, well, you don't want to talk to me, but try this guy. This is the, the head of the record company. And so I called the next guy and he goes, well, it's not me. Try the head of management. So I call him. And this goes on for maybe nine or 10 people till finally I got to the right guy. And by this time I had my talk down. 
My name is Franz Ferrari. I am an illusion designer specializing in special effects and magic for stadium audiences. And I would like to speak to someone concerning Michael Jackson's new tour. I, I had it down. So um, I ended up uh, getting to the right person. And that's the guy who then ultimately flew me to LA. So I did it myself. But to answer the short question, looking back, everything that I've ever done worth anything, I went out there and hunted for, you know, I, 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 I went out there and, and really just like going out in, into the safari and saying, screw it, I'm going to do this. But also knowing that if I landed it, I was going to be slightly out of my league. You know, anything that I've done looking back that, that means any sort of legacy, I never really truly knew if it was going to work, you know? And that includes making hotels disappear and, you know, illusions on a massive scale that that I wasn't sure. I thought they were going to work and I pretty much, I had a pretty solid plan and I knew what I wanted to do. But all this stuff is first time stuff, you know. So I, I over the years, over the decades, I've become comfortable with taking other people's money and promising something that I'm not a hundred percent sure is going to fly, but I, but as I've been doing this now for a hundred years, I've got enough experience in my pocket that I know that somehow I can make it work. But I'm still doing it even right now. You know, at this moment, I'm, I'm in China working on a show with a bunch of marine mammals, uh, beluga whales and dolphins and walruses, and and I've got this. Uh, the plan is that this show will be an illusion show with these animals where the animals themselves are the magicians. So in other words, they're not props like a circus. So I'm doing this thing where it's going to appear at least as though the audience is doing, a, you know, animal communication, you know, psychic communication with animals. And I'll use a lot of mentalism, you know, theories and principles. So I think it's going to work. I'm not a hundred percent sure it'll work, but I feel pretty good about it. And once I do it, then I'll have that in my back pocket and I'll, I'll be one bump further forward in the game. So the next call, I will, you know, I'll have that as well. And so really with that philosophy, I've been able to uh, accumulate a pretty big arsenal of methods that, uh, you know, that I've got available to me. These are new methods that, I, that I'm actually very, very proud of. I'm more proud of my new principles and methods than the actual tricks themselves, because it's if if you're not a magician, then think of a method as a color. It's almost like an artist discovering a new color, and with that color, the artist can now paint things that were not possible before. You know, that's I know it gets kind of confusing, but uh, yeah, it's a it's some some big thing can go on there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember how you discovered magic? Uh, how old were you? What was the first magician you ever saw? I do. I think I was about three or four years old and this was the parking lot of a Kmart in Ann Arbor, Michigan and a clown, a guy in a clown suit. I remember it was kind of drizzly raining actually. And a guy in a clown suit comes up to me and he pulls a bazooka bubblegum out of my ear. And I remember as a little kid, this would have been before I was ever in elementary, in, in like in kindergarten, thinking to myself how strange it was that an adult person, an adult, would 
be dressed up so stupid <laughs> and, and be doing something that's so stupid, hiding this gum in his in his hand and then pretending like it's coming from my ear. And I just thought the whole thing was just so dumbass. <laughs> Why would a person want to do that? I just didn't get it, you know? Um, and then years later, Doug Henning shows up and suddenly everything changes. Oh, yeah. Because now magic is cool. And once magic was cool, then I started seeing, you know, you know the, the, the attraction to it. For a little while before I discovered magic, I was into, um, uh, you know, into uh, practical jokes. You know, the the joy buzzer and buzz in your hand or you pull out a stick of gum and it snaps your finger. And that's all good, but you can only do it to your friends once. And then you become that guy. So kind of burnt through those pretty quickly, you know? Yeah, I was that guy for a while, too. <laughs> yeah, for about six months, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you remember the first trick that you spent time learning and practicing and performed in front of somebody for the first time and got that big rush of adrenaline you get when you fool people? Man, you know, that's a really good question. And you said I can swear. So let me say my answer is going to sound like bullshit, but it is the <laughs> truth. And I've never thought about it until you asked me here. I never. Okay. So there was a fellow named Hank Morehouse who had the magic emporium in Ann Arbor. And from him, I bought little tricks for like a dollar and $2, you know, like a two card Monty and, and a, like a die box and little tiny things. So I did these little tricks, but never really performed them. The first show that I ever did was for the local IBM ring in Ann Arbor. And it was basically a dove routine that I did with rubber chickens. So really, I, yeah. So I got like a, a tip over box and a square circle, all stuff I made myself in, in shop and school, square circle, tip over box, carnival ribbons, I'm trying to remember what else. I mean, just dumb shit, you know, but, and I did it to this musical track of chickens uh, singing in the mood. And I dressed as I, I tried my best to dress like Colonel Sanders. And so I did this like three or four minute act making rubber chickens appear and feathers flying everywhere. So that was the first thing I ever performed. Uh, and I, I, I sort of instinctually knew that if I was going to do magic, I wanted to do my own stuff. You know, I wanted to to let the local magicians in Ann Arbor say, hey, I'm only 13 years old, but I've got something to offer. I mean, at the time, I probably wasn't thinking that big. But as I analyzed this in retrospect, that's definitely what's going on. And I still live with that right now. You know, the uh, I, I, I have respect for guys who are doing cube zags and, and origamis and God bless you. You know, you're making money. But to me, there's no reward in it. I, I feel like um, I feel like I'm coloring by number or being a karaoke singer. Yeah. You know, so it's it for me, at least, it's all about creating new material stuff, something that didn't exist before, putting it out there and watching what happens in front of an audience and then massaging it and tweaking it and playing with it until you get the audience to react as you want them to. You know, that is, that's such a rush and that's such a, an exciting, fun process. Uh, it, it far, far eclipses 
the 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 rush that you get from buying a trick and doing it and again god bless people for doing that because it's made me a bunch of money selling illusions to other people you know but for me personally it's there's the reward is in making something that didn't exist before and throwing it out there and seeing what happens and that's also true in concerts when i do uh, when i design for concerts or other shows in that case you're creating an effect not for yourself, but for an effect that that you as the designer feel is going to augment and elevate that show or that other performer. And then to be able to stand off stage or in the audience and watch it and feel the uh, the energy from the crowd, that is such a head rush. It's, I don't know how to put it into words, but it's in, it is equally, if not more rewarding than standing on stage yourself. I would absolutely love to see a photo of you performing as Colonel Sanders. That just sounds like such oh, a great idea. Oh, me too. I, me too. I've, I know there's a couple pictures out there. I don't have any. <laughs> I still have a couple of the rubber chickens, but they're totally decayed. By the way, uh, after 40, but 45 years, a rubber chicken becomes flat. So it's really unrecognizable as a chicken, but I've still got them. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, this speaks to what I really love and appreciate about you. When we see you performing magic, you're definitely doing magic in your own voice. And as we know, there's a lot of other illusion shows out there where it's kind of the same thing over and over again. You know, you see this cool magic guy surrounded by girls and, you know, they're doing stuff They're They're either ripping off you or they're ripping off Copperfield. A lot of Chris Angel clones now, too. And Chris Angel but, clones, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So yeah. how do you manage to make sure that what you do still feels like Franz Harari and no one else? Well, uh, firstly, I got to say, there is there is a, oh, I don't know, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a schadenfreude watching some guy do combination B, you know, every once in a while I'll get a call. Hey, you got to go to the, I live seven minutes from the magic castle. Don't go a whole, a whole lot these days, but sometimes you'll get a call. Hey, you got to go. There's one guy and his wife doing combination B. You got to see this, you know? So to see that it's, it's fun, but for all the wrong reasons, you know, and it's maybe because it makes me feel better about my own stuff, uh, which is terrible to say, but to answer your question, I don't know how to do anything that's not me because it starts with me. I think, I, I think any true artist, you can be a singer, a dancer, an actor, perhaps uh, an, an improvisational actor, you know, whoever you are, what you do is going to start with understanding who you are and then figuring out how to communicate that, how to communicate your human experience to an audience, you know, and, and that's what art is. Art is the communication of the human experience. And so as a magician, you're going to figure out how to create visual moments on stage, or if you're a close-up guy on a table, I'm not, I have, I have the sleight of hand skills of a chimpanzee, but you're going to figure out how to create these visual images that are going to not only move your audience and give your audience some sort of a little adrenaline rush, but also communicate a little bit about who you are. And that can be as simple as showing what you think is cool. You know, um, many, many years ago, uh, I was 
on stage somewhere, somewhere overseas, and I had trouble with some employee. It wasn't even really my employee. It was part of another group that was there. And there was a lot of bitching because they didn't want to work late. And the guy goes, well, you know, all this stuff is is a bunch of stuff that Franz thinks is cool. And I thought to myself, and I go, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> this is an hour and 40 minutes of things that Franz thinks are cool in a row. That's all this is, you know? So I think that that's where it all has to begin. You have to begin by asking yourself, who are you? And then once you know who you are, then you say, all right, if this person who I am had magical powers, how would you use them? Or in my case, I'm not even telling the audience I had magical powers. Um, there, oh, by the way, there's this really cool exercise that you can do and that everybody can do if you're, in, if you're for a performer. Think of three people whom, if combined, form you and your personality. For me, it's Willy Wonka, Tom Hanks, and Iron Man. You know, maybe there's a little bit of Doc Brown in there too, or you could switch out <laughs> Iron Man for Bono. But, but basically, those three types form me. In the case of Iron Man, he doesn't have superpowers, but he's got technology, and there's this almost irreverence to it, you know? So that shows up in my designs and my performance. But once you figure that out, who you are, then that reveals everything. And then you very quickly can figure out, well, this person who I am, what would this person do on stage magically? Or if you're an actor, how would this character react in this situation? So it all becomes driven, firstly, by who you are and by, you know, by, by that identity. Let me ask, uh, this is a for real question. Who are the three people if combined? Who are you? Who are those three people? Oh boy. Well, one of them for me would have to be um, David Copperfield. Cause I, yeah, but grew you know, up then that, he doesn't count cause he's already a magician, right? You're right. So, you're right. Yeah. But if you go to Copperfield, I can tell you that Copperfield is James Bond. He's, he's a lot of James Bond, you know, a uh, little bit of Mr. Rogers. So Copperfield's got his own three that form Copperfield. So you can't use him. So other than magicians, what three people are you? Okay. I would have to say, <laughs> it's funny. I've never really thought about this before, but I think that's such a great question. I would say <clears throat> Chris Farley would be one. Right. Sure. Um, let's see. Darkwing Duck. I have a bit oh, of his good. personality. That, that, um, and uh, on that same note, uh, a little bit of a Walt Disney. All right. I get that. I totally get that. So with those three, if you look at that combination, that will instantly tell you what you should be doing to communicate that, to share that with the audience. You know, But you'd be amazed the percentage of performers who, when asked, don't know who they are, which is crazy. Because if you don't know who you are, then how on God's earth are you going to share who you are with an audience? How are you going to move them? 
you know, it, uh, it befuddles me. But. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I talk a lot with um, with different improvisers as well. And, you know, we always talk about how when we're presenting a character, that character is you and not you at the same time, but it's still you. Do you feel like when you're on stage, are we seeing the real Franz Harari or are we seeing a character or a little bit of both? Uh, as I grow older, it's more and more me. I think as I stop caring less, that's terrible. You know, uh, I that's I mean, to speak to that, when I started out in 87, when I put together, well, let me go back. When I was in Michigan, I was a little kid doing this and I was doing all the hack material that everybody does two jerks at the end of the rope you know um uh, magic words that i've learned in church bingo you know all these hack lines because i'd heard them and i heard adults doing some so here i am as a 16 and 17 year old kid doing them myself but it's certainly not me and i do have some video of that and it's painful to watch so in 87 when i put together this kind of rock and roll looking show i was trying to be someone i'm not and I, I managed to look the part. I kind of looked like this, you know, gay Bon Jovi <laughs> thing, you know, and and, and it sort of worked. And still, until I started to talk, because when I spoke, then I was still this awkward, you know, twenty-three-year-old kid in Michigan. It's two jerks at the end of a rope, you know. Um, and it just didn't work. And a lot of my friends said I looked like a, a teddy bear in leather, you know, in a leather jacket. So it, and I did that for a, for like five or six years, the entire time point, I, I was getting some notoriety because no one had done it before, but I was hitting a wall because it's not me. It's not, I, I'm not that guy, you know? So it, took a while to to accept that I need to be me up there. And as I started to mature a little bit, I kind of went from Rolling Stone to maybe Sports Illustrated. There was a time where it was all about sporting equipment and body glove fashion and that whole thing. And then for a while, I, it might be because I met my wife who's Japanese, everything flipped to Japanese anime. So the whole show looked very anime, which is very future tech, but there's a sexiness to it. And then as I continue to mature, it's kind of settled into where now I'm this almost Iron Man kind of guy showing off his these wonderful toys that he's invented. So it took a while to get there. And it really happened not only as the show evolved, but as I matured and evolved and learned how to communicate my genuine character to an audience. The audience knows if you're faking it uh, more than ever. Audiences today are so hip. Absolutely. When I think back at the stuff we were doing 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's like, oh my God, they were stupid, you know? But thank God they were stupid, you know, because it let us get away with it. <laughs> today, audiences see right through it. And if you're not sincere, if you're not genuine up there, they will just eat you alive, you know? So I think... For me, it kind of all lined up because it took me a while to get here. Had I not gotten here, you know, I'd be killed. But thank thank God I figured it out. So, yeah, I, I even forgot what the question is, but it's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm analyzing myself in the process, you know. <laughs> 
What is your process when you conceive and design an illusion? What are some of the things that go through your mind and what are some of the things that you're doing when it comes to creating a new idea? It completely depends what it's for. If it's for me, then it's usually... Uh, let me back into this from a different angle. I eat, sleep, and breathe magic. I wake up in the morning and it's all I think about. Everywhere I look, I look for illusions in nature. I see it in shadows. I see it in architecture. I see it by accident all the time, you know? And so I am constantly looking for optical and psychological illusions, constantly. It's just there. It's just, I mean, it's like breathing, you know? And so I, I've collected a massive arsenal of of possible effects and principles and i've just got them in this men mental you know anvil case in my brain and they just sort of sit there so it's always i've got the it's always there right so if i'm doing something for myself then i start with the effect and i figure out okay how can i achieve this effect knowing that the ego, the narcissist inside me, wants to impress other magicians. For some reason, I don't know why, and it's less and less these days, but I've got this need to fool magicians. And so I spend a lot of time and money and effort designing illusions with new principles specifically to fool my friends. It's stupid because it costs a lot of money and a lot of time, and I could do it <laughs> easier if I just went with a tried and true method, but I do, you know, and, and, and I tell myself that in doing so I'm pushing the art forward. Maybe that's how I justify spending a, you know, five times as much money as I need to. But, um, that has also changed. Uh, and, and we'll hold on to that for a moment because the other way that I design is for another client. If you're designing for a concert or for another magician, I start out with asking myself, okay, who is this guy? You know, if, if, if I'm talking to an artist, I do a lot of work with Missy Elliott lately. She's become a friend. And so <clears throat> she's usually got a lot of ideas. Um, so, I'll, it, but, so it starts with asking them, look, if you had real powers, if you woke up this morning and you had Harry Potter powers, what would you do on stage to entertain your audience? And you kind of get to see where they are from those answers. A lot of times, to be honest, they don't know. And you hear, well, I want to appear at the beginning of the show. Well, I want to disappear at the end of the show. Or you hear, I want to do what you did for this other guy, but better. You know, you know that thing you did for Usher? I want that, but cooler. <laughs> I hear a lot of that. That that gave me about 20 years of work in the rap industry. Because I started with Run DMC, and then that led to LL Cool J and Cool Modi, and then Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Tupac. And it just kept going on and on and on as all of these guys came up to me and said, so, yeah, you know this thing you did for Queen Latifah? I want that, but cooler. <laughs> you know, I was literally competing with myself. So back to if I'm designing for another show. And by the way, this is not true for me. I believe this is true for any professional designer because certainly my friends who are art designers and you know lighting designers, it's the same process. You start with the person or the show or the, or the production, the story that you are designing for. And then you figure out how to bring that to life. So that's that. Now, going back to doing stuff for myself, I used to spend 
just a stupid amount of money building illusions for my own show. I have a, right now I've got three warehouses, one in LA, Michigan, and, and a dolly in China. Combined, there's probably eh, maybe eight million bucks worth of stuff, you know? And it's just because I kept building more and more and more stuff. There was a time when every time I would make some money, I automatically thought, huh, well, what can I build now? Once I got married, all of that stopped. <laughs> and, you know, my wife, who's way smarter than I am, uh, she runs the business. And uh, she very quickly figured out that if I keep doing what I'm going to do, and, you know, we're both going to die broke. So I had to kind of change the way I produce my own show. And now what I do is I may have, an, for an example, I, I have this idea where I... I, I wanted to do a, a time travel effect on stage, which, by the way, is more intelligent my audience could handle. I, I tried everything, and they just looked at it like, huh, like, look like, like sheep. They just couldn't get it. Nevertheless, I had this really cool idea for this, this very cool-looking kind of Jules Vernian device that looks like it was built over time with different technologies being added to it, a pretty big thing. Uh, I knew it was going to cost about 80K to build, and I wasn't going to be able to spend that money anytime soon. So I convinced Chevy that they needed this effect for a corporate show that I was doing for them. Oh, wow. And I got paid for it. And I've done that probably 30 times or more. So my warehouse is filled with, again, millions of dollars worth of stuff, but it's, it's illusions that I convinced other people to pay for for their productions and then making a deal when the production is done, then I get to take it back. And I still do that. In fact, I'm doing it at this very moment. I'm doing that. So that's sort of become a key part of my, my business plan. Otherwise, you know, I would have even more magic, but uh, be living in a box outside of Seven Eleven. So, you know, it's so funny. Walt Disney uh, did the same thing when he was creating his attractions. Like when he uh, invented It's a Small World, he had Pepsi pay for it. Right. Well, that was that was for the 63 World's Fair. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah, this The 63 World's Fair, that was an epiphany for Walt because he figured and then he got Monsanto and he got all these other. And you remember the world of aluminum, you know, he got all these <laughs> other companies to pay for this stuff. Uh, and yeah. But then, now we're talking about Disney, but then when he opened Disney, uh, Disneyland and Tomorrowland, the whole place seemed like a big, giant corporate trade show. So there was a problem. Anyway, back to magic. You know, we'll stay away from Walt, you know. <laughs> There's a place that I know is very near and dear to you, and it's a place in Colon, Michigan called Abbott's uh, Magic. Of course. What can you tell us about Abbott's Magic that just makes it so special? I cannot give it justice, but do this. Go to YouTube, go to my YouTube page, Franz Harari, and search Abbott's Magic or Colin. I think it's Abbott's Magic get together. Search that. I produced a 12-minute documentary about 15 years ago. 15 years ago, they said there was going to be the last convention ever. So I flew out there with my crew and we shot the whole thing. Go watch that. It tells the whole story. But the short version of Abbott's Magic is um, Harry Blackstone Sr. had a vacation house in this tiny little town of Colon, Michigan, 2,000 people in the southwest 
part of Michigan where I grew up. I grew up in the southeast in Ann Arbor. So about two and a half hours from my hometown, tiny little village. And for 75 years, crap, I remember a long time ago, a long time, they've been having these get-togethers that just grew and grew and grew. Uh, I started going when I was 13, was my first one, and I met so many people there. When I was 16, I entered a contest there with the Chicken Act, actually. <laughs> In that contest was also some new kids that it just, you know, they're unknown kids. Uh, one guy is Lance Burton. Um, then there's Matt King and Jeff Hobson were all in that contest with me. So I think the three of them got first, second, third, and I would like to believe I got fourth. I didn't win, but I wanted to believe I did. <laughs> but that place also, you know, gave birth to, to Kevin James and so many, many other people. But the convention was massive. It was uh, for four days a week, the town would double in size because there'd be 2,000 magicians from all over the world. And there's, it's a tiny little town, so there's no, not even one hotel. So you're basically staying in people's homes, you're know, staying in their living rooms and their guest rooms, and magic is everywhere. So it's, it's for the last 20 years, it's been getting smaller and smaller. And I hate to say it's on life support, but it's, it's only a shadow of what it used to be. But don't stop that from letting you hop on a plane and go into Colon, Michigan, first weekend of August every year. Uh, and yeah, and once I started getting a little bit of notoriety, then I started using the Colon shows as a place to workshop new material. It was pretty great. Now, I, was, I was at the last one in last August. I was there, you know. Yeah. You know, I remember as a kid uh, hearing so many times that Las Vegas is the magic capital of the world, but I'm hearing more and more that it's really Colon, Michigan. Well, sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. Maybe there's some I subjectivity mean, to that. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's, a, it's up for interpretation. It's put it this way. Magic is all that Colon's got. That's it. <laughs> you know? But Vegas now, you know, there's no, as you well know, there's no place in the world that's got more magic than Vegas. So, right. But there's also more everything else in Vegas than anything else. So it's not just magic. You know? Right. There's like 20 we'll Cirque du Soleil shows. Yeah. Call it, we'll call it the prostitution capital of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, you always manage to make your magic better and better and better. Do you often feel a lot of pressure to have to try to top yourself each and every single time? Constantly, constantly. Uh, going back to Michael Jackson, um, I knew him for 26 years and very early on, uh, I don't remember where we were, but, uh, you know, I used to just come over to his place and just do magic and just play around with magic. And again, I've, I've really got no close, hand, close up skills whatsoever, but, but I'd go buy stuff at Hollywood magic and take it over to him. And then for a while there, I was, he was like paying me to build magic. Oh, that was great too. Cause I'd come up with ideas and he'd give me money to build them and we'd play with them for a little while. And then he could board and they'd end up in my warehouse. But I digress. Um, this would have been maybe 1988, right around there. He goes out of the blue. He goes, Franz, whatever you do, make sure you do it different and better than anybody before you. And I have lived with that. That'll probably be on my 
on my tombstone someday. Whatever you do, do it different and better than anyone before you. And that includes yourself. So don't repeat something you've done because you're not going to grow from that. You're not going to grow. The art form is not going to grow. It might get you some bucks, but it's not going to do anything for your legacy. So it is a constant, um, it's, it's a constant task to continue to move forward and not copy and not repeat. And that means, you know, not repeating yourself either. Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, about your, your close-up skills and it's interesting how within the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of emphasis on close-up magic because of people like David Blaine and, and Shin Lim. And of course, during the pandemic, all over the internet, you saw a whole lot more close-up magic everywhere. Do you find it difficult at all to perform magic on the scale that you do when there's a lot of emphasis nowadays on focusing on cards and coins and much smaller scale magic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and by the way, Shin is a friend, a good friend. Um, he, I hired him to work for six months at, at a place I had in Macau called the House of Magic. Oh, cool. And he ended up marrying one of my dancers. Oh, Casey. wow. Yeah, so I, I'm... I'm I have declared I am personally responsible for all the sex he will get for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And I, I, I know Shin well. I've, I watched the show a hundred times because I had to, because I produced it, you know? So um, I, I see what's going on in close up magic. And again, I, I'm the easiest audience because 90% of it fools me. And I, and I don't have any interest in trying to learn it because it's a different discipline. A lot of the psychologies are the same, and I recognize that. But for the most part, it's a different, you know, it's a different set of skills. Um, huge respect for it, huge. Not my thing, not my barbecue. I've always been uh, very, very um, connected to large effects and to the manipulation of people and props and vehicles and equipment and architecture and and playing on that scale, I love that. I just, it's so exciting to me. That's, that, that's my happy place, you know? Uh, and I found that as a producer, as a salesman, it's easier to sell an airplane shrinking or disappearing than it is a four of clubs becoming a nine of diamonds. <laughs> so until you hit a celebrity status like Shin, you know, and, and, uh, or Lu Chen or some of the other guys out there until you've got that celebrity status and people are coming to see you, it's easier to sell a big effect conceptually than it is a small effect. So in pretty much every show that I've produced for the last 20 years, I've got some element of close up magic in there. It's not me doing it because I suck, but I've got a lot of great guys, a lot of great, great friends who do it. You know, Christopher Hart, a dear, dear friend, um, you know, Brocco Solano. These are guys who I, who are friends that I hang out with every day anyway. So by popping them into the show and letting them do their manip, it, it kind of fills out that missing element to the production, you know, and, and, and I know enough to know that that's not me. I do one card trick and it's only because you know, after 20 years of people giving me shit for not doing any card tricks, I came up with one and it's basically just a 
pick a card is this your card that's all it is mm -hmm. but i use um, a lot of led video in all my shows and so i produced a a, a very visually intense video segment that includes live dancers interacting with video dancers and you know, it's all about the screen it's all about the imagery but in the end from this giant video almost um, fever dream a card ends up getting pulled out of the screen by me and it's your card it really is pick a card is this your card but to get there I have to use a $2 million LED wall. So <laughs> that's it. That's my only, that's my one card trick, you know? Yeah. Probably the most expensive card trick ever. <laughs> I have no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure that that's smart, but, but I, I recognize that I, I, I couldn't do a double lift to save my life. So I've come to recognize if I'm going to do anything worth anything, I'm going to have to rely on that, which I know. And, and that, that is production, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the other things that makes your magic so special is that it's never just a trick. With you, it's never just, okay, here's my next illusion, and now here's my next illusion. With you, there's a story, there's a concept. The trick is framed within this great idea. As an example, uh, I recently watched your, your TED Talk, and one of the tricks you did was this absolutely outstanding trick which i've never seen anything like it before where you were in between two pieces of fabric and we see you morph away but it wasn't just hey check out this cool trick it was all coached into this idea of passing uh between the space between space um how do you come up with the idea of the story that goes into the illusions that you create uh, well, firstly, thank you for the kind words. And go to my YouTube page and look at my TED Talk. By the way, that's a real TED Talk. It's not one of these airport Hilton TEDx things. That's a real one. It used to mean something, and now there's like thousands of them. Right, right. Every Denny's back room. And anyway, um, but that that's just me being bitter. Uh, so, um, and again, thank you for the kind words. What you're talking about is a thing that within my my company we call 2d entering into the second dimension uh this boy there's a lot to say on that the the fast answer is all of the backstory if there is a backstory to any of my magic again comes from things that i think are cool and i am a kind of amateur quantum physics enthusiast i love particle physics. I love, you know, theoretical physics. It's fantastic. And, and today, I mean, literally today, uh, you know, and even what we're learning from the, uh, the, the James Webb telescope is our re okay, boy, this is a, this is a Pandora's box of the subject. <laughs> we're learning that our reality is probably not real, you know, and, and there's a lot, there's a lot to support that. Go Google the the, the double slit experiment, but there's a crazy amount of evidence that what we think is reality is probably an illusion, probably an illusion that is the product of us as the observer. And I'll save getting too sciency on you here. But what's happening is science is now crossing over into religion and into spirituality and into magic. So all of this stuff that we used to consider magic, 
the idea of making people and objects appear and disappear and transport and, and transform, all of that we're now learning is not only possible, but probably happening all around us. So that's a big, giant brain fucker, if I can swear. I just love the fact that you gave me permission to swear. I'm going to say it again. It's a brain fucker. No, I shouldn't swear because I might use this on my own Facebook page. <laughs> Listen, um, I, I knew very well the people that I wanted to talk to, which is why I set this to explicit for that reason. So don't feel yes. bad about it. So, yeah. So everything is coming together. Science and magic and philosophy and and it's all coming together. So I am so fascinated by that, that I try to introduce my audience to a little bit of that. Uh, that illusion was actually, I, it's a voiceover that comes from a piece written by Stephen Hawkins, but it's read by uh, Billy McComb, my dear, dear friend, Billy McComb. So he, he lives forever on in my show in the form of a voiceover. And the, the illusion that you're talking about is basically me becoming flat, becoming infinitely flat into a two-dimensional world. And I try to explain how the anthropic principle works and how we now know almost certainly there are many parallel universes all occupying the same space. What, you know, thanks to Marvel Comics, we now know as a multiverse, you know. Yep. Uh, but still, I'm going to say to 20% of the audience, they watch me do that on stage and they go, oh, look, Arliss, he disappeared. And that's all you get. And if that's all they get, then I'm okay with that too. That's fine, you know. <laughs> the first time I ever saw you was on the TV special World's Greatest Magic. And you were... 1994. Yeah, way back then, way back then. And I remember you made a, you made a spacecraft disappear, which absolutely blew my mind and in fact you didn't just stop there you also made the platform disappear right so that was in retrospect that was kind of probably dumb that was <laughs> the explorer so again i'm a huge huge aerospace geek you know i just love everything i grew up with the apollo program as a little kid so to me that that's implanted in my mind ever and and, and i've analyzed that as well and i think what it really represents is the idea that really anything is possible, you know, and it, and there are no limitations. Um, so, but because of my fascination and my kind of geeking out with all things related to the space program, uh, when I got this call from World's Greatest Magic, I saw an opportunity to go play with the spaceships. So I contacted the people at Kennedy Space Center and I convinced them to letting me do a thing with the Space Shuttle Explorer which now is, now it's inside, it's got a really nice building and it's all lit and music. But back then it was just outside on the ground um, and really in the weather. Uh, so I, I had to come up with, oh, by the way, this is a great example of really just going all out and not being certain if what I was gonna do was gonna work. <laughs> but I figured, all right, I got one shot at this. So I had to figure out a way uh, knowing that the, the folks at NASA were not going to let me touch the actual, the orbiter. I had to figure out a way to make it look like it became invisible without touching it. So that led back to a thing that I had done three years earlier, four years, three years earlier, for the Santa Fe Casino in Las Vegas, where I made that disappear. Keep in mind, this is like, in 1990, 1991. So it's 
way before digital. It's before Terminator 2 or Jurassic Park. Digital just didn't exist. So everything that I do and did and do do now is uh, these are all in-camera effects. They're 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 called practical effects. So there's no digital anything. You're looking at it as it looks like to the camera, you know. So I had to figure out could I apply the methodology that I used to make this hotel invisible to making the shuttle invisible. And once I figured that out, I was so pleased with myself and so just tickled that I had worked it out that I decided I was going to make the gantry, the big giant structure behind it disappear as well, which in retrospect was stupid <laughs> because it is a split, it's a split focus. I pulled focus away from the spaceship and I just did it because I could. But there's no reason that I should have. I should have left B. It should have been just about the spaceship. Yeah. You know, but it's it's one of those things where you kind of learn as you go. You know, looking back, I would certainly never do that again. But I was just so excited to have this new method and to discover that it works. It's like, hey, let's make everything disappear. Let's make the gift shop disappear. How about the how about the tour bus? Everything is gone. Everybody's gone. Everything's gone. Yeah. yeah. You you became like Oprah. You disappear. You yes. disappear. You disappear. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. I remember I watched when you made the Taj Mahal disappear, and it was totally different than any other vanish I'd ever seen. And I remember I even watched it yesterday in preparing for this for this interview. And no matter how many times I watched it, it just absolutely kills my brain every single time. So I will tell you a interesting story about the Taj Mahal. So again, everything is in camera, if you know what that means. So in other words, if you stand in the right place, it looks like magic. But if you stand off to the side, eh, not so much magical anymore. So I really, really do use angles a lot. So if you watch that again, uh, we were in India and I was all set to shoot the Taj. I came in with my little crew which wasn't a lot of people, like four or five people, and we had the equipment, and, and I set up this big giant mirror. I, I do a lot with mirrors, right? And so I did some test shots of the Taj vanishing. But then when it came time to do the actual shoot, suddenly we're stopped by all these security guards with, with machine guns. Oh, no. And, and they're speaking to each other in Hindi, and I'm not sure what's going on. And they say, excuse me, good sir, what are you doing with the with this mirror. And they go, well, I, you know, I, what I use the reflection of the Taj and the blah, blah, blah. And they, again, they start speaking in Hindi and they say, we don't fully understand it, but we feel as though it might, it might affect the Taj. So you're forbidden. Like what? Wait, 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 wait. So we were quickly escorted away from the Taj Mahal, oh, but no. at least I got that shot because I got the test shot, but now I didn't have any of the setup. So what the hell am I going to do? Because I had to turn it into a show. This was for uh, the Travel Channel, I believe. The Tra Travel or Discovery? Travel Channel. So, But I had to turn it into a show. But all I got was just the vanish. So I had another gig immediately following in Malaysia. Now, Malaysia, about a third of the population is Indian. So I got a bunch of friends of mine, all Indian friends, a lot of Indian magicians. And we formed an audience in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, that looked like it matched up to the audience we would have had at the Taj Mahal. And I intercut between a Malaysian audience and me and what we shot at the Taj and put the two together to make it look like it was one continuous thing. Oh. So I can't say that, yeah, I vanished the Taj for, you know, a, 
a live Indian audience, but that Indian audience was not in India. <laughs> and they were alive, but they were in in Malaysia. <laughs> in 2010, you received a very prestigious award. You were declared Magician of the Year by the Magic Castle in Hollywood. What was that experience like, and how did it feel to receive this this award that now really puts you as among the greatest magicians of all time? <laughs> I don't know. That's well, again, it's very kind of you to say. Uh, I was in India when that happened. It was for 2010. I got it in 2011, and I was in India performing there when I got that award. So I had to shoot a thank you thing. And I remember I, I grabbed some giant gold, uh, like a, like a gold vase or something and just decided that this was going to be my award. So I picked it up and I did my acceptance speech on stage and thanked everybody, but I wasn't there. I wasn't in LA at the theater there with all my friends, or I would have loved to have been, you know, um, that was, I forgot what it's called. It it was, um, I don't know, like a lifetime achievement thing. I forget. But about eight years later, um, and I think what happened here is God bless him. I think that was done by uh, a felon named Mark Nelson. Mark Nelson passed away and whoever took it over again, I think had forgotten about the award. And I got a second one like two years ago. So I've got these two life I've only got one life but I've got two awards so I just go with it but you know every, all that stuff is great because it it means that your peers think you're doing okay you know you can never let any of it get to your head but it's nice to know that what you're doing is being noticed by people who you care about and that's about it you know Right, but it's fun. I got, I got a, I got a living room full of. You know, what's fun is I guess, um, I, I, we recently got a home in Orlando. I, I had all these trophies in my living room in L.A., and nobody who comes to my place in L.A. gives a crap. It's like they don't care. You know, it's it's all just my same magic friends and whatever. They, it's almost a joke to them. But we have a home in Orlando, and it's a whole new group of magic friends. So I took all of my trophies there and I set it all up there in the living room and. And in Orlando, suddenly it's a big deal again. So that's kind of fun, you know. <laughs> but that that's really all it is. It's its an opportunity to show off to your friends a little bit. And uh, yeah, but th that's where it's got to stop. The moment, I, I believe with all of my heart, the moment you start buying into your own hype and into your own press, you are screwed. Hmm. Why are you screwed when you buy into your own hype? I'm curious. Because you start believing that you're all that. The moment you start believing people when they say you're great and you can do no wrong, it makes it, it's happened. It happened to me for about six months. And, and then I caught myself, you know, you start thinking to yourself, maybe I am all that. Maybe I can do anything. Maybe I am. Maybe I really am this great. And the moment that happens, one, you have the potential for becoming a douchebag, but also it's very easy to become lazy. Mm. Uh, I don't want to name names just because it's wrong, but I know that you know well-known magicians that are douchebags. <laughs> and it is because they believe their own hype. 
If you have enough sycophants around you all the time telling you you're great, it goes to your head. And I've seen this happen not only with magicians, but I've seen it happen with a lot of pop stars. You know, um, I was uh, friends with Paula Abdul before she ever became Paula Abdul. Oh, wow. She was the choreographer for Cool in the Gang, and we hung out and spent a summer together. And uh, then she got a, a break with a record contract, and the next thing you know, her, her telephone number changed. And I didn't hear from her for like 10 years, you know? So I saw that cycle. I saw it with other people. I, and, and I've seen good friends of mine, magicians, who have attained success, who then also started buying into their own hype and became not great people. So I'll I, I give you one more example. In the music industry, there is something called a second album artist. And that's an, an artist that has just put out their second album. They are the worst. When an artist puts out a first album, or they're going out on tour, they are excited out of their mind because everything is new. And suddenly they're on tour and they can have sound and lighting and video and dancers and, and lobster backstage and audiences screaming their name. And it's wonderful. And they are loving it. By the time they get to the second album, they've often started buying into all of the hype and they become assholes. They become egotistical and pompous and rude because they feel as though they deserve all of this. So if you're working with a pop star, with an artist that's on their second album, you know it's going to be awful. You know you're going to get all this attitude and it's just going to be a terrible, terrible experience. Now, if they can get it to the second, by the time they get to the third, they're usually okay. And I've worked with a lot of old-timers like Cher and Stevie Wonder and Madonna. And they're great because they've been around the block enough times to understand what this whole game is. And they're really genuinely good people. But it's the second album artists. And that's what I see has happened to some magicians. And that's what I've, I've tried my best never to allow myself to become that. Never to to buy into my own hype. I really don't take myself too seriously. Mm. I really love that. I love that, you know, with all the success that you've achieved, you still manage to keep yourself humble and, and grounded. And, you know, what you described, I, I think you're 100% right on that. I've seen a lot of magicians that way. And I've also seen a lot of uh, improvisers that way too. But I love that thing of no matter how well you do and no matter what achievements you, you achieve, you still keep yourself grounded and humble. I think that's so important. So really, thank you for sharing that message. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I believe this with all of my heart, you know, and that goes into that bridges into something else. I was just talking to a close friend of mine, Joaquin Ayala, um, actually a headline Vegas illusionist. Google him, Joaquin Ayala. Um, he and I were talking, and the best part of, of doing a show is not even doing the show. It's, it's when the show is done and everything's packed up or you're all preset for the next day and you're going to the coffee shop and the hotel and hanging out with your friends and your cast and your crew or other magicians. It's that hanging out at the coffee shop. That's the best part. That's what all of this is for because the audiences go away and you know, that's, that's all superficial, you know, that, let me jump over to another thing on that subject. Uh, I was in India in 2010, 2011. And, um, 
I did a pile of television there, a, a series called India's Magic Star, and I I was a judge. Well, for one, I produced a show, but also I was a judge, a kind of Simon Cowell character. And on these shows, I repeatedly would I, I was judging these Indian magicians. Actually, in many cases, Indian magicians that I was training and teaching and mentoring, and then they were going on stage performing what I had taught them how to do, and I had to judge them. That was a little weird, but not the point of all this. <laughs> so um, I would I would uh, hear all the time that whatever magic I was seeing was pretty good, the best in India, and it was always this qualification, and, and it would make me crazy. And it really became my mantra to the point where I was saying, look, guys, so long as you keep telling yourself it's the best in India or really good for India or, you know, the best considering blah, 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 then the best you're ever going to be is maybe the best in India. When I wake up in the morning, whatever I'm doing, I'm trying not to be just the best in L.A. or the best in the United States. Whatever I'm doing, I want to do better than anybody in the world. I want to be the best in the world. But you are handicapping yourself by somehow giving yourself this cop out that, you know, it's being it's good for India. It's, you know, the best Indian magician. Uh, and what happened is that was misinterpreted because of translation as the American guy telling the Indians that we're not good enough. So uh, this uh, show had about almost 350 million people watching, uh, which now, if you look at TikTok, isn't all that big. But for me, 350 million is a bunch. And they became divided. About half of them said that uh, Harari is supporting us as Indians and, and pushing us forward and, and, uh, and, and, and trying to accelerate us, while the other half was saying, no, 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 you know, he's... he's speaking you know, poorly of us. And it became this whole thing. And I became this iconic figure nationally for about a year to where I had just a ridiculous amount of fame. I couldn't, you know, I walk on the street and instantly, you know, there, I, I never had to worry about a car or a ride. I could just stand there and within 20 seconds, somebody will stop by and give me a ride in their car or motorcycle, whatever it is. You know, it was great. And, and so with celebrity comes a lot of freedom and a lot of power and all that's great. But it also showed me the true nature of humanity, which is at least in the case of, of where I was working, it was like the game Hungry Hungry Hippos. You know the game Hungry Hungry Hippos? Oh, yeah. So yeah, so everybody wants a piece of me because they saw that I had some I was worth some money, that I that I had value. Everybody wanted a chunk. Before it was all done, I had my entire cast and crew. Uh, their passports were held for ransom, so they couldn't leave the country. Oh, wow. All of my equipment, about 1.2 million bucks worth of equipment, was held for ransom by the guy, by my agent who brought me in, who decided that he needs to make another $400,000 before he was going to release the equipment to the freight forwarder. It's just crazy, you know, truly evil. Uh, and at the same time, I'm doing shows and having strangers tell me I'm great, you know, but I remember... I was in this a giant kind of palatial uh, apartment that I was living in there by myself. My wife went back to LA and I was there by myself just feeling all sad and terrible because of all this awful manipulative stuff that was going around me. And I thought to myself, maybe, 
maybe I'll just go to a shopping mall and be mobbed by a couple hundred people and have strangers tell me I'm great. That'll make me feel better. So I went there and it didn't work and it just didn't do anything. And that, that was a huge epiphany to me to when, when I realized that all of this means nothing if there's not someone there whom you genuinely care about to share it with, you know? So the, the approval of strangers and fame and what comes with it is worthless unless you can share those benefits with people whom you care about, with your friends, with your family. Uh, and it, it really was a giant spiritual whack in the back of the head, you know? Uh, but it changed me, changed me, certainly changed who I am today, you know, and, and I live with that all the time. So you, you'll learn that the reason that we work our, our asses off like this in the end is purely so that we can do things to help our friends and to be kind to the people we care about. That's it. Because if it's just about the trophy and the poster on my wall, it doesn't mean shit. Wow. That's so, that's so awesome. Well said, you know, because of the type of magic you do being very large scale, there's a lot of technicality to it. And of course, from time to time, as things often do, sometimes something might go wrong. And, you know, if you're doing it for television, of course you have the magic word cut, but, Ah. (laughs) but when you're doing it live, you know, sometimes Ah. it happens, you know? So Ah. what happens (laughs) on those rare occasions when something just doesn't go right? Ah, well, uh, it comes with age in the, Oh, and again, for all of the wrong reasons, some of the biggest fun we used to have is going to the magic castle the first Monday of every month and watching audition nights. And watching young guys crash and burn, oh my God, that was so much fun, but for the wrong reasons. But you'll learn. You'll look and you'll learn, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I learned pretty early on that when I'm on stage, it's different when you're doing television. If you're doing live television, and I've done a lot of live television, your butt is just clinched the entire time. And you just kind of pray to God that everything goes and nobody gets killed, you know? Um, if it's not live, then you sometimes have the luxury of saying, you know, praying that the director goes cut, do it again. But if it's a live show, I've come to recognize that even though I'm on stage and I am the catalyst for everything that the audience is watching, it is truly a shared experience between me and the audience. And we're in this together and they are as a much aware of a technical meltdown as anyone else. So when that happens, you have to admit it. You have to go, well, there you go, kids. You know, that's the fun of live theater. You know, just, just pull your pants down and say, here it is. We're in this together. Don't try. I don't try to lie and pretend to them that something didn't fail when it's clear that it failed. I think part of sharing that failure brings the audience closer to you. I've seen this happen repeatedly. In some cases, the best thing you can happen is have a tiny little failure. And even better if it's not technical, but if it's, if it's a, if it's um, human, if there's human error on stage, either from an audience volunteer or from your own assistance, that is an opportunity to grow from 
because in trying to solve that problem on stage, you find new, you find new ways to, you find new bits for one, you know? Um, and certainly as an improv artist, you know, that's true more than anywhere. Absolutely. The best stuff comes out of mistakes, you know, uh, say yes. And, you know, if that's really, it is, yeah. it is, it is, it is yes. And to the ultimate degree when you're doing yes. And with an illusion, all bets are off, you know, but, but you need to embrace it rather than trying to fight it. Yeah. I remember a, a Copperfield had a bit where he stood on stage and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to do a brand new illusion. And then all of a sudden you hear this big crash from backstage. And of course it's loud. It's very audible. Everyone hears it. And he kind of takes a pause and then he looks back to the audience and says, folks, we're now auctioning off a new illusion. Yep. There you go. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, you know, we definitely live in such a different time now. You know, we're, we're living in a time that's so technology driven and this technology is way more accessible to us now than ever. And, you know, we are now in the CGI age. We're in the time of DC Comics and Marvel and Star Wars, where all these movies apply CGI. And of course, everyone has, you know, these apps like Instagram and TikTok to have all these filters and, you know, stuff like Pokemon Go that plays with the whole idea of augmented reality. Do you find it difficult to amaze an audience with magic knowing that we're in such a CGI generation? That there is a three-hour conversation. <laughs> you, you're asking something, maybe you're aware of it, but bigger than that, you know? Um, so let me try to let me try to crystallize this into a couple minutes. Uh, we are living in a time, especially now with the rise of AI that's going to destroy all of us in the next five to 10 years, uh, in a time where the average Westerner, the average person living in a developed nation assumes that anything is possible. Uh, if, uh, if you take an iPhone and make it hover in the air two or three inches above the table, I guarantee you, half of your viewers are going to ask you what app that is. <laughs> you know, it is just assumed that through technology, we, you, we are all able to do things that would otherwise be, you know, considered magic. Um, oh crap. I'm trying to remember the writer, a uh, famous author and any, any, uh, any new technology is indistinguishable any, any from magic. Any substantially developed technology is indistinguishable from magic. Oh, I've got, I've got a jacket that says that. I can't remember the writer now. He wrote iRobot. Anyway, so um, it is true now more than ever. Uh, I, I do a lot of work in Asia, in China, and then there's so much technology that the audiences are numb to it. I feed on that. I feed on visual effects and I, I was in Beijing a couple of weeks ago and I'm in the airport and they have an, an all out hologram of a car there floating in the air. It's a freaking car floating in the air, a hologram, you know, I'm going, Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I just stood there. I stood there for about 20 minutes watching it. And I also noticed that no one else cared. They just walked by it. They didn't care less, couldn't care less, you know, because we've become so jaded to, to technology that it that flips around to why I believe that close-up magic, sleight of hand magic, is now so powerful because it's not tech. It's clearly a guy and a deck of cards or some coins or some dice and a 
cups and balls or whatever it is. You know, it's very, very low tech. And in that um, lack of technology, there's a beauty and there's a clarity to it. Uh, in my own show, again, I have to, the stuff that sells, the stuff that's on the poster is the big high tech stuff. But the stuff that they remember is the stuff that looks like crap. And a lot of my magic, I have a lot of big illusions. I have simplified so that they do not look beautiful. They don't look, they certainly don't look glamorous. Uh, they just look functional, almost like I bought, you know, bought a bunch of equipment at the Home Depot. Uh, and with that, there is a, a skyrocketing effect in its credibility because the audience is no longer assuming that there's any sort of tech or science behind it. They think it's literally a ladder and a, and a pallet and a, you know, a couple jacks from the Home Depot. So with that, with the loss of suspicion from the props means they're quicker to buy into the idea that there's something more going on. Maybe there is a real magic going on. Jumping over to that subject, again, I've traveled the planet and I'm so thankful for that because I, I, I never stopped appreciating the fact that I get on a plane and sitting across me is an old couple that's probably spent their entire life saving to be on that plane, you know, and here I am flying for free. Uh, but especially into some of the developing nations that I've gone to, like Bangladesh or Indonesia, although Indonesia is not really developing, um, I have pursued real magic. Um, and, and I found it. I found things that I cannot explain. Um, I in, in Bangladesh, I saw this woman literally in the dirt. Um, and she was doing, I guess what I can only describe as telekinesis. So I, I understand, you know, how to use a loop or how to PK factor. I get all that, you know. So whatever she was doing was not that. But she was able to move stones and animate stones in the dirt somehow. So for all I know, it's real. I would like to believe it's real. But I've seen stuff that I can't explain. I've had I've had a guy in, uh, in Malaysia grab my arm on the street. This is before I had any sort of celebrity. Just grab my arm and start telling me graphic details about my past. Details that were I would not want to share with anybody. You know, ugly stuff about breakups with girlfriends. And like, what? You know, so I've seen so much of that, that I, I genuinely believe that there is real magic, which, by the way, jumps over to what is happening with quantum physics right now, because it's all interconnected. Um, and that then plays into why does magic that's so ugly look so real? And it's because there's so much technology that if we can strip away tech, that woman doing magic on the dirt in, in, you know, in uh, Bangladesh becomes infinitely more powerful than a guy in a very expensive suit in Vegas making a car disappear. You know, uh, again, you've kind of opened up a Pandora's box of a subject here, but <laughs> we'll just leave it at that for right now. You know? That sounds good. That sounds good. Franz, we've come to the final question of our interview today. And this is the same question that everybody gets at the very end. And I'm excited to hear your response to this. If I were a condiment, what would I do? <laughs> My question is this. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you'd want everyone else to hear? Well, I've told you already, whatever you do, do it different and better than anyone before you. No question. I live with that. I eat, sleep, and breathe that. 
whatever you do, do it different and better than anyone before you. Hmm. Wonderful. Franz, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this and I wish you so much love and success in your future. Right back at you. This was such an honor and a joy. Still can't believe how lucky and blessed I was to get to talk to this man. Thank you so much, Franz Harari, for taking the time to talk to me. And thank you very much for continuing to push magic forward. My friends, I know you're going to want to learn more about this guy, so please be sure to visit his website, franzharari.com, to learn more about his shows, his unique designs, and much more. And you can also check out Franz Harari's YouTube channel to watch his incredible magic at work. And while you're on YouTube, feel free to visit my YouTube channels called LD Madeira Magic and Together by Myself. My friends, every moment we share together is a blessing and a privilege for me. I hope you all have a wonderful day and I'll catch you next time here on Improv and Magic.